Hello, everybody. Hope you are great. Uh, just wanted to say a massive thank you to everybody that listens to us and everybody that supports us. We really, really appreciate it. Just wanted to ask you a small favor. If you could scroll down below this podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast, and there should be a little box that has a five-star um, ranking and a little review box. If you could leave us a rating five stars hopefully, and a nice little review. It just helps us to push up the ranks um, and get our message out there to more people, inevitably helping us to fulfill the purpose of this podcast, which is to help as many people as we can. And if you don't like us, uh, don't worry about it because we don't want your review, bugger off. No, just joking. We love you too. Keep listening. And also for anyone that's listening to this that might be struggling with addictive patterns or knows someone that is struggling with addictive patterns, we run a treatment program called Connection Based Living um, where we help people to transform out of addictive patterns without going to rehab. So if that's of interest to you um, or you think it might help someone that you love, feel free to get in contact with us at www.connectionbasedliving.com.au. That's www.connectionbasedliving.com.au. And we'll be happy to uh, chat to you and help you in any way that we can. All right, into the show. All right, welcome everyone um, to another show of The Real Drug Talk podcast slash YouTube channel. Um, geez, we've actually done a few episodes because, um, yeah, we're on the radio and it's all kind of here and there. So I don't even know what episode this is, but we're going to call it two to four. <laughs> It'll be there somewhere. Um, and I'm excited because today we've got Nicole Lee and the reason I guess I'm excited is because I think for me anyway, um, over the past, what it's been probably about five, five, nearly five years since I met you maybe yeah maybe a bit yeah, less be yeah, yeah um it's been a really cool five years meeting nicole and um other researchers and people with incredibly large brains in the alcohol and drug sector um <laughs> because i've learned so much and i'm kind of excited to um yeah bring that onto the show and talk to nicole because i think there's a real disconnect between um yeah evidence um based stuff and people that kind of have really dedicated their life to studying um, all these different things and really know a lot about it. Um, yeah, there's a big disconnect with that and sort of the mainstream conversation that happens around drug, drugs and alcohol. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, how are you, Nicole? I'm great, yeah. <laughs> how you, how <laughs> are you coping with the COVID? <laughs> well, yeah, pretty good, pretty good. I've um, got a very tidy house at the moment. <laughs> yep. Got loads of time to be organizing things and yeah Love that's it. good <laughs> so so usually i do an introduction but you've just done so many things and i don't 100 percent get the um <laughs> academic world as well that's not the only thing that nicole does but um just like in a snapshot just tell us kind of about yourself and what you do because you've written books and yeah done lots of stuff yeah, I've done well. Yeah, I've done lots of stuff. Um, nearly all of it's around alcohol and drugs, yep. and a little bit around mental health and allied areas. My background's in psychology. Yep. Uh, so I started off as a psychologist, um, really as a research psychologist, and then I um, started doing some clinical work. So I yep. see 
clients as well as research and um, also do training with practitioners. Um, and I have lots of hats, but the two main ones, I guess. <laughs> Heaps. Uh, yeah. Heaps. Um, yeah, the two main ones, I guess, I, I run a consultancy in the drug and alcohol sector called 360 Edge, which is uh, which does uh, professional development for um, practitioners around alcohol and drug topics, so alcohol and drug workers plus other health workers plus other frontline workers. And uh, we also do what I call service development, so anything to do with service improvement evaluation, program development, um, benchmarking, best practice, that kind of thing. Yep. And my other hat is as um, adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute. So yep. that's just a, an honorary appointment um, and a connection with the university yep. from all the research I've done. Awesome. So a lot, a lot. Um, and I, I guess a few things. I'm excited to talk to you about the service delivery stuff because that's the, um, I guess that's the, the area that I'm really interested in, but people are always kind of saying, oh, the system's fucked, the system's no good, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I'd be interested to hear about that. But just like tell us quickly, why um, did you get interested in particularly like drugs and alcohol? Because traditionally it's, something that most kind of people run away from, you know? <laughs> I know. It's really, um, really interesting. And I've been thinking about that a lot um, yep. lately. And at first for me, um, there's a combination of things, I guess, that I have a very um, strong social justice drive. Yep. Um, I don't understand why... Some people have millions of dollars and some people can't feed their families. I don't understand why um, people can't just accept uh, other people as they are. Yep. And that all kind of feeds into stigma and all of that. And that's a really big part of the alcohol and drug sector. But when I started, that was probably wasn't really my driver because I didn't understand all of that stuff at yep. that time. Yeah. Um, I uh, actually went to uni to do computing and computer science and started in engineering completely and um, accidentally fell into psychology because it was the only way I didn't have to repeat the whole of first year at uni. <laughs> so it wasn't even a really deliberate kind of um, decision to make. And then I just got interested in from a quite a research perspective or an intellectual perspective because that was in the 80s. Yeah. Um, when we, you know, we were still in that transition between confrontational, um, punitive approaches and motivational interviewing was just starting to come into yep. practice and um, CBT had been around for a long time but hadn't been well applied to alcohol and drugs. So yeah. I started kind of getting interested in that um, transition. That's how I really became part of the sector. That, that is interesting because, um, you know, I guess we always talk about and we've talked about a little bit on the show how the alcohol and drug sector is always kind of a couple of steps behind or it feels like that anyway. Maybe we're not, but it feels like that we're always a couple of steps behind um, other healthcare industries or just other industries in general in terms of like technology and stuff like that. But it's funny you say that because a lot of the people that um, – uh, it would have been quite interesting space to come into in the 80s because a lot of the 
uh, older guys that I know that are in recovery and all that kind of stuff that went to like rehabs, you know, talk about having a, like, like a, the therapeutic model was cleaning the floor with like toothbrushes or, you know, like just stuff like that. Like it was this real kind of, yeah, as you said, punitive way of doing things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, we know now that that doesn't work, but at that time it was still the prevalent model that, that most rehabs were using. Yeah. It's, there was some kind of moral deficiency in people who had problems with alcohol or drugs and they needed to be, it needed to be kind of whipped out of them in some way. Which, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, now we know that's ridiculous, but uh, that's what it was like then. <laughs> so the thing that I've got to ask you about, um, because I think it's um, something that I've found really um polarizing is not the word, but it was very, it was very like different to how I thought because I was, uh, yeah, I was quite kind of uneducated. I was just reading headlines at that stage, but yeah, something that you're kind of um, famous for, I guess, is like the, the stuff that you've done around ice um, commonly known as the ice queen um, and <laughs> um, shining a light on the, the interesting research and the actual figures that exist around ice use and um, people developing problems with ice. Do you want to like tell us a little bit about all that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the things like I'm, I think of myself as a pretty good researcher and a pretty good clinician, but I'm yep. not like outstanding at, at, you know, I'm not the best that I know at either of those things, but what yeah. I'm really good at is like putting the two things together and seeing yep. the bigger picture. Yeah. And so when, you know, there was a whole bunch of researchers kind of looking at the data and a whole bunch of um, clinicians and also the community seeing what was happening on the ground. And those two things didn't really go together. Yeah. They didn't seem to go together. Um, but when you look at the, when you look at all of the data and the bigger picture, you can see a pattern that, um, well, I could see a pattern that was pretty clear to me that um, even though we were having a reduction in uh, the number of people using methamphetamine, the type of methamphetamine people were using had switched from powder to ice. And so yeah. the harms were increasing. So it, it, demonstrated um you know i think it demonstrated the bigger principle that use is not the only indicator that we need to look at it's actually harms yeah. Yeah. Um, that are really important yeah 100 percent. and i guess at that time as well um and it's something that now that we're sort of it still gets brought up quite a bit but um we're out of that real intense phase of like the media reporting on ice as like mm. this epidemic, like this kind of crazy thing. You'd almost think when it was, that was like back in 2015, 16, yeah. maybe earlier, something like that. You'd almost think it was, it was kind of like how COVID-19 is talked about in the news now. That was like what ice was like. It was just like plastered <laughs> all over the TV and stuff like that. So, um, and I guess how people would, don't get me wrong, the harm, as you said, the harms that obviously gone up but it wasn't as bad as everybody thought and people just weren't kind of walking around addicted um what was the like disconnect there and what was the big thing that people were missing it was around that people use ice but they don't just necessarily get addicted straight away 
Well, yeah, I mean, there was a whole lot of myths um, that were generated because, you know, you can you only see your part of the world that you see. You know, you yeah. can only see if you're standing in a direction. You only see in front of you. You can't see behind you or to the side. Yep. So um, people making assumptions just looking ahead rather than mm. looking 360. Mm. So, um, yeah, it, it meant that, um, I think that some well-intended people in the community and governments made some decisions that weren't really based on reality and what yeah. the data showed. Um, 80% of people who use methamphetamine just use it occasionally. And most of those use it just once or twice a year. Yeah. And that kind of gets missed when you're in the emergency department or you're in the drug and alcohol service or you're in the community and you can see it's very visible, mm. um, you miss the bigger picture. So yeah. I think it, that's why it's really important for um, our responses to be informed by the evidence and by the data. Yeah, because what was actually happening and, you know, full disclosure, I was one of those people like, so I was stuck in the bubble. I hadn't had extra kind of education. I wasn't talking to other people with different points of view at the time. I was working in a rehab. Um, so all we were seeing was like the kind of 1% of people that are severely addicted and dependent. Um, yeah. And I just thought that coupled with the news, doing a lot of media myself, I just thought everybody was addicted to ice. Um, and once I kind of snapped out of that and looked kind of over the hill, it was really interesting because there was a flow on effect that actually happened where there was this whole, a larger group of people that weren't at the pointy end that were at severe risk of kind of falling into that category, but weren't getting any help because they were feeling stigmatized or they didn't, they didn't feel comfortable to, you know, yeah. reach out because they didn't want to be labeled as like, <laughs> like an ice junkie or whatever. And that was a really interesting shift for me to have. Mm. Yeah. And I think that there was a whole load of implications from that. Um, I think that's really important that, that where we, where we actually might've had a bigger impact was that group in the middle who were using quite regularly and at risk of becoming um, mm. dependent on it or having other problems. But um, so much stigma around it that they were like not having a bar of going into treatment. And also it meant that our policy decisions were not around harm reduction. They were around policing because yep. if we need to reduce use, then we need to reduce supply. And so all of the focus was on reducing supply rather than actually reducing harms. Yeah. So I think that um, it really demonstrates how important it is to look at the whole picture yep. and make decisions based on the whole picture and not just um, what appears to be the case. Yeah. So um, tell me, right, how is, so when we say the data, because it's something that I've noticed and, and I agree that we have to be more evidence-based because we're not. Um, but the other thing that I've noticed is kind of um, observing these circles is that from my point of view anyway, like the evidence is also limiting, like in terms of how we collect it. And so, so how is, you know, these prevalent measures and um, whether a service is effective? I know they're two different things. So sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit, but you know, all these different things, how is that actually calculated and just like talk the listeners through 
the process on how that's actually determined because I think a lot of people don't understand that because I definitely didn't. So at a kind of population level or at a, a kind of bigger government level, we collect a whole load of data sets. Yep. So we every four years there's the National Drug um, Household Survey. Yep. And um, that's a random survey. It's about twenty five to 30,000 people that are surveyed and it's extrapolated to the general population. Yep. So there's all of the data has holes. There's no yep. perfect data set. So that has, that, um, for example, doesn't capture people in mental health facilities or yep. homeless or, you know, so it's, it's not capturing a larger proportion of yep. people who are at risk. Um, so the data is probably um, a slight underestimate yep. in that case, um, but it'll be a slight underestimate every year that it's done. So we yep. can look at trends at least. And then there's a whole range of other data sets collected. Um, there's some what's called sentinel groups of um, drug users, people who use drugs, that are surveyed over and over again every year yep. um, through uh, the uh, illicit drug reporting system and the ecstasy yep. and related drug reporting system. And then there's the wastewater data yep. as well. And yep. then there's the tra treatment data. So the treatment yep. data is... How many people have come into treatment? What have they come in for? Um, and what were their outcomes? Like whether they left um, unexpectedly or whether they completed treatment or yep. that kind of thing. Do they look at like ambulance data as well? Yep. Ambulance yep. and hospital data is also part of the mix as yep. well. Yeah. Yep. So, and then is the process, and this is on like a wider population scale, um, the analysts, experts, how do they do it? Do they like amalgamate it together or look for trends that appear across all of it? Or Well, yeah, that would be the ideal. But um, the way that research works is that people become specialised in their particular area. Right. And um, so they tend to just focus on one or two of the data sets and yep. utilise that. But in an ideal world, we would put all of those data sets together and have a look at the pattern um, between them and come up with a better solution, I think, yep. than just looking at one or the other. Yeah. Um, and from, so what's the latest um, group of data set from a pop, data sets from a population health perspective? What's the latest that's come out with that? What, what uh, year? So the, probably the... Um, the National Drug Household Survey uh, is was collected last year and it will yep. come out in, well, it should come out in the next couple of months. Yeah. Um, and the wastewater data is collected frequently um, every couple of months um, throughout the year. So tell me about, because <clears throat> I, I was going to ask you, like, what are some of the trends that we're seeing? Um and I don't know if you know that off the top of your head, but um, what are some of the trends you're seeing? But also, like, tell us about the wastewater da data because I know that <laughs> amongst... because that's a, Yeah, that's controversial because I know that's thrown in the news because it sounds kind of sexy that they're, like, sifting through our poo and, like, working out <laughs> what we're doing or whatever, and they use that all the time in the in the news. But I know that amongst kind of researchers that it's it's contentious. Yeah, and it's it's really um, it's a data set that's really easy to digest because it's 
um, more concrete than some of the other data that we have. Yep. But there's um, a huge problem in it. So the way that it's collected is that there's particular places around Australia where um, wastewater is sampled. Yep. And um, they... So, like, do they go to, like, do they go to, like, Werribee and, like, take a scoop out of the poo farm or...? Something like that, yeah. Out of the out of the sewage, um, the uh, yeah, the sewage wastewater, um, and when they so that it's in it's in the same spots each time. There's multiple spots around Australia. Yeah. Um, no one knows. No one except the researchers and the government knows where the spots are. Oh, uh, so they don't conspiracy yeah. coming on <laughs> they don't um, they don't disclose which um, which testing sites are where right. or how right. much you know like what the drug rates were in different testing sites and so the more testing sites we have the you know the better the data will be yeah. so the problem with it is that um, it tests for metabolites of a range of drugs, which means that um, the drugs have to be have been digested in order to be detected. So, if you just chucked your pills down the toilet, it wouldn't detect those. It right. would only detect um, once it's been metabolized in your body. Yeah. Outcomes of that. Uh, so, one of the problems with it is that it can only tell us the volume of drugs that have been used. Um, and not the prevalence of drugs. It will tell us um, that, you know, a certain number of kilos of drugs have been used in this particular area, Um, but we don't know whether a a few people have used a massive amount of drugs or a load of people have just used a little bit. Yeah. We can't tell that from that data and we have to put it together with the other population data to make more sense of it. Yeah. And does it, I don't know if anyone's done this, but does it spike around music festivals and events yeah. like that? Yeah. It's very seasonal. So you can see in summer it, um, it's a lot higher than in winter yeah. and it is affected by things like um, people congregating to, you know, a lot of the, for example, a lot of the um, festivals are in regional areas. And so when people come into the regional area mm. to go to the festival and they're there for three or four days, yeah. um, that might affect the amount of drugs in the in the wastewater, for example. Yeah. But it doesn't, you know, those people aren't there all the time. They might come from all over Australia. So it yeah. doesn't indicate that that particular area is necessarily a yeah. hotspot. Right. Right. So, um, okay. So that makes sense. So how, like, so really what is needed with the wastewater is that there needs to kind of be more transparency around the testing sites and where they're located so that there can be a greater number of people, um, not disputing but yeah um analyzing the data and just making sure that it's right is that kind of what people would want um that would be one one way to deal with it i think um the other way is to make sure that the researchers are taking account of the environment that the data is collected from so if there is a festival then you need to take account of that Um, And I I think that the dissemination of that data has been um, problematic. So it's um, talked about as if it's a a prevalence measure. And so we can tell that 
in a particular area there's heaps and heaps of people using but we actually don't know mm. that and it's talked about as if it's a perfect measure and it's right. it's just as imperfect as the population data and the treatment data it's it's also got holes in it it's not um it's not a perfect data collection system and it's not a perfect analysis system either yeah interesting so um tell me like what are the trends coming at that we've seen so when so you said that the new household data is coming out in hopefully a couple of weeks or months or whenever it was but um so what were the trends that we're seeing before that with like drug use so we have seen some interesting things, uh, quite a big reduction in um, young people's drinking, so that's yep. teenagers and young adults. Um, significantly over the last 10 years, it's been continually declining, so fewer people drinking and also um, the people who are drinking drinking less, yep. um, which is interesting. And the people who are drinking more are um, kind of middle-aged um, women particularly wow. my cohort. Yeah. So um, there's been a, a bit of a switch in who's drinking and, and how much they're drinking. Yeah. Um, there's been a flattening and a decrease in lots of illicit drugs as well, um, yeah. particularly among young people. They tend, they're, um, despite what the media says, um, they're becoming less interested in taking illicit drugs. Why is that? Why is that like with the drinking and the young people using drugs? Yeah, what is there any ideas into why that actually is? Like, has has the because to me the campaigns seem to be very like <laughs> punitive and things like that. Still, um, it, it means, yeah. yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, the mass media campaigns are not that helpful and don't align with best practice generally. Mm. Um, there's no one knows for sure, but there's a couple of theories, I guess, um, that there's uh, potentially there's a bit of modelling um, for this generation because their parents are a little bit older than um, my generation. So yep. my mum was in her early 20s when she had me, but I was in my 30s when I had my child. Yep. And um, in my 20s, I was still partying, but in my 30s, I'd kind of settled down by yep. then. Yep. And so there's probably a bit less modelling of lots of drinking and drug That's interesting, yeah. Um, there's much better drug education in schools now than there was um, even 10 or 15 years ago. There's yep. a lot more evidence-based programs. They're not nearly as widespread enough, but yep. they're um, but where they are available, they are um, having an, they seem to be having an impact. Mm. Um, and the other theory is around the kind of ways people communicate now. So there's a lot more yep. online um, kind of social connections, um, people yep. tend to go out to pubs. We've seen a decline in the night economy, um, which is probably reflective of uh, not sure which way it goes, but it's somehow associated with the reduction in young people drinking. So there might be a whole range of things that are impacting. There might be other things as well. I know for me, like something that's kind of become big is that um, not so much club sports I think in the last few years there's been a shift in club sport culture around like drinking and stuff but I think I don't know almost the wellness movement like there's a lot of like young people now that would um or they're really in touch with like 
what it is to be healthy holistically as a person and everything that kind of goes into that. And I think that's had a big impact as well. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot more people just, you know, doing yoga and sports and a whole range of other things that are kind of incompatible with drinking and taking drugs. If you want to be healthy and then on the other hand, drinking heaps, then there's a disconnect there. So yeah, I I agree that people are much more focused on their health and um, well-being. So from someone that's on the front line of the data, um, what needs to be, what would need to be changed in your opinion or fixed or amended just to help it improve even more? And actually, so I guess firstly, would you say that what we do at the moment with data is awesome, like on a scale of one to 10? Um, And what, yeah, what do we need to improve to make it better? Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Um, It's not awesome, but our data sets are, um, compared to the rest of the world, pretty good. Yeah. Like we have a lot of data collected um, and it's collected quite rigorously. Yeah. Uh, and if we, compared to some other countries like New Zealand, doesn't have a um, drug survey that's regular. I think the last, um, the last data about the population level of drug use was, I don't know, something like 10 years ago. Oh, that's amazing. Um, We're beating them at something. So, um, yeah, and there's lots of other countries that don't have a, you know, ours is really regular every four years. um, And so we can see trends over time. Um, And we have a lot of different data sets. I think the the thing that's missing is putting all those data sets together into a story. Yep. Um, That rarely happens. Uh, and um, it means that we could be making policy decisions in a bit of a vacuum. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think that's like, that's, don't get me wrong. We can always be better. Um, And I hate sort of saying this sometimes, but it's, it's really true. Like people have to remember as well with whether it's drugs and alcohol, whether it's any healthcare um, system that we have in Australia, I wouldn't go out on a limb because I don't know and say that we're the best, but we have a pretty good, from what I've seen anyway, we have a pretty good healthcare system and a pretty good way of doing things. And it's even though to me it's frustrating and it feels like we're behind with a lot of stuff, um, Mm. we are compared to the rest of the world in front. (laughs) I don't know if you'd agree with that, but yeah. Um, And there is at least some kind of avenues for people to get help. Um, So tell me, Transitioning into that, your core business at the moment with 360 Edge is, yeah, um, as we are talking about at the start, service, delivery, improvement, um, workforce capacity building, things like that. Um, how are we going with services? Because I know this is a big one for people. They, they feel like the system's fucked. And at times, at times I feel like it's fucked, but is it really? <laughs> Yeah, it's really complex. I think that we've got um, we've got a workforce, for example, that um, you know. I think because, because, as you said at the beginning, the 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 sector is um, not one that people generally kind of mm. uh, you know kind of scrambling to be in. You have to really be committed 
in some way to the yep. sector to be in it. And so that is a really good start that we've got a bunch of people who really care about the sector and the people yep. who they're serving. Um, the, I think the main problem is the lack of funding yep. for alcohol and drugs because it's seen um, by governments as a kind of low priority in some ways, mm. I think. Um, there's just not enough money going into it to pay people well enough to um, lift the the standard the, the standard of services. Yep. Yeah. So we mm. still have um, a lot of people without any professional qualifications, for example. Yeah. And you would not see that in any other health field. Mm. And I think that um, having, I mean, you you know very well, Jack, that the peer workforce is really important but um that's a separate issue to the professional workforce yes if you look at the professional workforce in other health areas um they're more professionalized than yes and i think um a lot of that's not a, a function of not caring about that it's a function of not being able to pay people at, at the level mm. of a professional so if I were to work in um, mental health, for example, as a psychologist or in a hospital as a psychologist, um, I would be paid a lot more than if I was in an alcohol, as, as an alcohol and drug worker, yep. for example. 100%. And it's, so you were saying at the start, you just don't understand how, uh, you know, people can't accept people for who they are and some people have all the money and, and others don't and all that stuff. Oh, one of the things I just cannot wrap my head around is just the, um, yeah, it's not like we're banging on, we just want money and funding for all these services and all this stuff. It's really just to pay people for, um, what for the work that they do, <laughs> for the work that they do and the, and the extreme complexity, um, and emotional volatility and all this stuff that they have to deal with on a daily basis to walk home with like a good, a good wage, which is probably when you're hitting into a manager of $80,000, it's just not, <laughs> it's just not a lot. Exactly. Like, I don't know if you know what the averages are, but just off the top of my head, I think probably the averages in the alcohol and drug sector would be maybe like 65,000. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, I wouldn't be surprised if it was around that, which is not a lot. Yeah. And that's, and when I say that, I mean, full-time working with people with incredibly complex needs and issues, not just with drugs and alcohol in other um, areas of health and, you know, with other like social issues and stuff. So it's, I a hundred percent agree with you. And that's not putting down anyone that is, that's listening to this that is working in the drug and alcohol sector. I think it's um, amazing what people do, but yeah, it's just, it's incredibly hard for people to get paid with what they're worth and be incentivized to actually get better, do better, um, yeah. upskill themselves. Yeah. And we also lose a lot of good people out of the sector because they can 100%. be paid better elsewhere. So um, we want to, you know, we want to keep people who are specialists in alcohol and drugs in alcohol and drugs because um, they're the ones that, you know, know about behaviour change and know about how to treat people. We don't want to lose them. 100%. I actually, 
he was my worker and he was like one of the biggest reasons why I hung around in the service that I went to. Um, I'm going to try and do another one, another interview with him because now that we've got the good equipment and the podcast and stuff, but he, he was saying to me that he was really disappointed, but he worked in the um, alcohol and drug space for like nearly eight years. And he was awesome. Um, helped a lot of people was really good, kind of progressed as much as he could through the ranks. Um, but he just said to me, oh, I left and started my own businesses like he's into motorbikes and he's got like some kind of concreting yeah. business as well because there was just like, even though everyone was really nice, loved what he was doing, there was just no opportunity for him to progress any further than he did. Um, yeah. Yeah, which it's, is crazy. It's a, yeah, one thing that's really missing from the sector is um, professional pathways through mm. the sector. So you kind of come in as a drug and alcohol worker, there might be a range of salary you can be on, you might kind of go up um, to that salary. and But then to go to the next point, you need to take on a managerial job or do something else. That's um, right. There's few of those jobs. There's fewer of those jobs. Um, we need to be paying our good drug and alcohol workers more so that um, they have time for professional development. They have time for supervision. They can provide supervision and mentoring to other people mm. and we don't lose them from the sector. A hundred percent. And it's not like you're just going to be throwing money away either. It's going to be a positive ROI because you're actually going to get better outcomes with service results as well. Absolutely. Because people are going to have more time, more specialized knowledge, which for everyone listening is exactly what you need because that's the other crazy thing. If you think about drugs and alcohol, however you want to think about it, it's really a super specialized um, area of health. You know, you, you, like you need to spend some time understanding how it all happens physiologically, emotionally. You know, there's lots of different <laughs> components that make up a drug and alcohol issue. And yeah, so anyway, I feel like I'm banging on like a broken <laughs> But it's, but I agree. But it's not like, um, not to, not to kind of um, denigrate any other areas of health, but it's mm. not like a broken arm where there's no. a protocol to fix it. You know what to, we know what to do with a broken arm, a different type, different types of breaks. We know what um, the different ways to fix them. Um, when you've got someone with a complex drug problem in front of you, um, they're all completely different. They've all come from a different background. They've got different mm. pressures on them. At the moment, they've had different pressures kind of in the development of the, the problem. And so you've got to be a pretty um, complex thinker to solve, to help them solve that problem that they've yeah. got. So that's interesting. And that kind of helps transition into the next question that I had for you, which was, I don't know if you think it's a problem or something that we need to change, but one of the things that I've noticed as well is that, yeah, we don't have any protocols in terms of treating um, drug and alcohol use um, because for everyone listening, right, I guess there's two streams and we only ever think about drug and alcohol use as addiction, which is one stream, which is like when you hit the pointy end and then the other stream is just, you, like just using drugs and you might not actually have an addiction, but you're starting to have maybe the person's starting to have issues with relationships other or other problems yeah. and they want to do something about it. And there's, so people, that's the first thing people often don't understand the difference between that, but 
say if we're just talking addiction, right? There, there doesn't seem to be any protocols or standard markers to be measured against or hit that makes up, uh, I guess you could call it like a clinical diagnosis or a, or a agreed upon methodology of treating addiction. Is that mm. true? That's what I think. Is that true or is that um, not true? <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty. That's a pretty good summary of where we're at. The, um, there, there are protocols, but not everybody uses the same, um, the same protocol. Some of them, um, some of the strategies that uh, are being used are well outside what we would consider to be best practice. They might have been, um, you know, thirty or forty or fifty years ago. Yeah. What you know, the best that we had, but technology has kind of moved along a lot since then and research has moved a lot since then. So getting people, getting the um, practitioners to use um, what's current uh, best practice is probably one of the most difficult things to to transition into. And we know that it takes um, about 10 years from evidence to come out to get it into practice and that's way too long. Wow. So, so what is that best practice at the moment? Like what's considered best practice? So there's a range of different types of treatment that are effective. Um, Mm -hmm. The mainstays uh, in counseling are motivational interviewing. That's got a good evidence base. Now we know that it is effective in motivating people to change. Yeah. behavioural and cognitive therapies. So there's a whole range of those that are effective. So traditional kind of what people call CBT, but is um, really uh, cognitive therapy. Yeah. Um, but also some of the newer things like <clears throat> um, dialectical behaviour therapy, which started out for people with personality disorders. Yeah. Um, we know that works. What's, what's that? Uh, so it's like a combination of um, Zen Buddhism and yep. uh, cognitive behaviour therapy principles. Awesome. Yeah. So a lot of kind of acceptance and um, distress tolerance is one of the really key strategies. Is that, is that what they call acceptance and commitment therapies or is that something different? Yeah, that's something different as well. And that's yep. got uh, that's very new much newer and it's got a a smaller evidence base but there's some indication that that's also um effective as well so that's also based on behavioral and cognitive principles um actually on what's called radical behaviorism so reinforcement Mm. so so just to go back and explain because i often forget that maybe people are listening and they (laughs) they don't know the alphabet soup that we're talking about what so what's um what's cbt brief definition so it stands for cognitive behavior therapy yeah and it's the the idea behind it is that um there's two things that we view the world through a particular lens that we have developed right across our childhood and into adulthood um, that is unique to us. And it's not always, it's not the situation that might be the problem. It's the way we view the situation. So if we can change the way we think about something, then um, we can shift how we feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. And Uh, some of that is, uh, some of that is 
um, changing the way we respond to a situation. So that's where the behaviour comes in. Yeah. So, and the way that it kind of plays out for people in a session, if you think about it, so now people are going to be going to their psychologist and thinking, oh, they're doing CBT with me or is this <laughs> acceptance and commitment? The way it kind of plays out from my understanding is that you uh, help someone to kind of realise the thought process that's going on versus the action that's happening um, and help them to identify maybe what they could do different. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's a pretty good description. So we know that the idea is that thoughts and um, behaviours and feelings are all kind of linked in this circle. Yeah. And um, if you behave differently, it'll impact on your thinking and it'll impact on how you feel. If you think slightly differently about something, it'll impact on how you respond to it, your behaviour mm. and how you feel. And so um, the idea of cognitive behaviour therapy is to try and impact on your thinking and your behaviour. So things like um, uh, if you feel really stressed and you yep. always reach for a drink when you feel stressed, if you take a few breaths first and calm down, you might not need the drink. And that's just a really simple behaviour that shifts how you think about whether you need a drink or not. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. So, so that's CBT. What about um, motivational interviewing? What's, what's that one? So that's to, that's a, it's kind of a bit out as it sounds. It's also called motivational enhancement therapy. Yeah. Um, oh, so, so it's not called, is it not called um, motivational interviewing anymore? Yeah, it is. It's, oh, it is. Okay. It's kind of the, the manualized version is, called motivational enhancement therapy okay. the process yep. is called motivational interviewing i like i like motivational enhancement therapy better actually mm -hmm. because mo i remember when i learned about motivational interviewing i thought that's a weird name like you're not interviewing someone you know it is it sounds <laughs> like you're kind of yeah you're doing some kind of media interview with them and ticking off stuff but it's yeah. completely the opposite to that so it's um the idea is that as I said before, you know, you can only see what's in front of you and not behind you. And motivational yeah. interviewing is um, the idea is to ask lots of what are called Socratic questions. So yeah. open-ended um, questions that help someone to reflect on the situation so that they can see the whole picture around them. So often yeah. when people uh, um, have problems with alcohol and drugs, um, they tend to focus on either what's really great about using yep. and they minimise um, some of the problems. And when those two things are tipped, um, tipped up, uh, when you start recognising some of the problems and how deeply they might be affecting you, mm. then um, the theory is that that creates a shift in your thinking and then uh, a shift in your behaviour as well. Yeah, 100%. And both of those things are really important, obviously, when you're going for anyone listening that's currently in some sort of state of addiction or has been before or whatever. It's obviously really important because, yeah, um, extended drug and alcohol use impacts on kind of your perception about yourself and the rest of the world. So having someone help you to illuminate what might be really going on um, 
without telling you <laughs> is really <laughs> is really helpful. So and then so explain what's acceptance and commitment therapy like how does that work? So that's um, a form of behaviour therapy, cognitive behaviour therapy. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a different therapy. It's come out of the same kind of approach and the same kind of theory. Yeah. Um, the difference is that uh, it um, incorporates a lot of mindfulness right. and ref- acceptance and reflection. So that's where the acceptance comes from in the name of it. Um, reflection mindful reflection and acceptance of the situation rather than some of the traditional CBT um, strategies are much more about arguing with yourself and um, coming up with a counter argument and that kind of thing. So acceptance and commitment therapy say, don't worry about any of that. Just accept that this is the situation that you're in and move forward from there. Got it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and it also focuses um, one of the features which is very similar to motivational interviewing is that it focuses on how your um, how your values and maybe how your forgotten values ha- can drive change. So yeah. if you remember why you want to be a really good father, then yeah. that might have an impact in, on um, whether you're drinking in front of your kids, for example. Hundred um, percent, and then you were saying, what's the what's the new like Buddhist one called again? What did you call it? Dialectical behavior therapy. Dialectical <laughs> behavior therapy. So, and then how does how does that work? Is that um, kind of the same where it has some of those old principles with some um, yes. cool Buddhist stuff in there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, it's a it's a combination of um, Zen Buddhism. We, and acceptance and understanding and um, cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah. So I, I guess the question is, is so that's like kind of the talkative side of things. Um, is there anything like revolutionary? Cause I guess a lot of the people these days, you know, they have access to the internet. Um, there's people like Joe Rogan talking <laughs> on there. There's lots of different stuff out there, which is awesome. There's even people like um, Professor, well, I forget his first name, but I always remember his last name, Nutt, David, is it David? David Nutt. Yeah. David Nutt, yeah. Nutty, um, <laughs> Hazelnut, I call him. Um, but yeah, so there's people like that out there kind of talking about, um, yeah, the use of psychedelics um, to mm. help with initial kind of drug use recovery. Um there's like lots of different stuff out there. There's been like 12 step fellowships with like spirituality stuff um, involved. There's like, yeah, people go down avenues of religion. There's like, there's lots of stuff out there. I can't even think of all the different things that people do. So that's kind of the evidence base, what we talked about before with the different talkative therapies. Is there, is there anything else that's kind of coming up that makes real sense that really kind of helps people? I know that's a big question. Sorry. Um, yeah, that's a big, <laughs> it's a big question. Uh, there's nothing, there's nothing really revolutionary that I can see. Yeah. I mean, I think that my view is that we have all the pieces mm. and we can always know more, of course, but we have all the pieces to, to improve what we do already. It's just a matter of actually using them. Yeah. Um, 
So things like we, you know, I think because of the stigma around alcohol and drugs, we're really, um, as a society, quite resistant to harm reduction um, measures. Um, When those things from the data, if we just looked at the data, they would be um, hugely impactful in terms of reducing harms, obviously. Um, So I think that we, and and we've got some good treatments that we know work, but getting them implemented is the difficult thing. So I think that the implementation of the stuff that we know works is probably the key um, for moving forward, really. So for people out there, if they're looking to get help, um, they're looking at a service, what should they be looking for as a quality service? Because it's not clear, I I would say, um, for people, you know, there's, so if I'm to go to the doctor for, I don't know, let's say, yeah, a broken arm, I kind of, I kind of know like what I'm looking for. I know that I need, not only do I need a GP, I need someone that has kind of a proven track record, has some stuff behind them, presents it well, can explain the situation to me, is recommended by someone else. I don't know. Like it's not clear like that for drugs and alcohol I've found. Yeah, it's definitely not clear. And there's so many um, services that are kind of doing their own thing and um, making it sound like it's innovative and new and everyone because everyone thinks the system's fucked, um, which it's not, they are looking for something new that will fix it. Mm. And, in fact, um, we don't need that. I don't think we need that. And it is a problem because the the sector's really, um, as you know, is unregulated. And so there's a lot of private providers. Not that I know a lot of private providers that are providing excellent service Mm -hmm. but it does leaves it open for dodgy people to come in and say i've got this new you know brand new tough love therapy and i'm um and it works you know 100 percent without actually even measuring whether it's working or not 100 percent, and um that's the interesting thing so just to kind of touch on that for everyone it's really important um you can go to my website or there's some other stuff we I've started to put together like some um, documents for people okay. just to kind of ask a bit more like probing questions to providers so that they can make sure that they're getting a good service. Cause this is not a war against private providers. Cause I think you've had a private practice in the past, Nicole, I've yeah. got a private service. Um, it, you know, like they're great. Like private stuff is good, but as long as it's done within the bounds of what, is evidence-based and acceptable because unfortunately, like Nicole said, there really is some dodgy, dodgy kind of providers out there. And if you're not careful, you could think that because you're paying 50,000 or whatever it is that you're going to get an awesome service. And really you're not like you're getting a service that's not even as good as kind of the worst run public service or whatever. I don't know. But um, so, so yeah, so that's important that people know that. Um, so yeah, so what should people be looking for in let's keep it kind of brief in like a rehab or an outpatient rehab program? What should they be looking for? Well, so they should be um you should go visit for a start if you're looking at a rehab to see whether you like the feel of it, right? Yes. Um and people's intuition about whether something is good or dodgy 
I think is generally pretty good. So that would be the first thing. Hundred percent. But you'd you'd be wanting to ask them um, about uh, things like like what kinds of treatments do they provide and make sure that they say things like we use motivational interviewing, cognitive behaviour therapy or ACT or um, DBT or one of the, the therapies that we know are effective. Yep. Um, you'd want to see that those interventions are the core of the, um, the, core of the program, not yep. a side thing. So a lot of programs started off, and I think most of the mainstream ones have moved now, but as you said, they started off with, um, you know, if you did work around a farm, that was kind of treatment. But that isn't treatment. Yeah. That's an important adjunct to treatment. But it won't fix your drug and alcohol problem without some deliberate yeah. um, intervention. Um, I would be looking for, I'd be asking them about their family involvement because we know that involvement of families at an appropriate um, level and appropriate time for some people. Some yep. people's families are not helpful, but um, most people's would be supportive. So if they have a kind of family program, that's a good sign. If they have um, some kind of peer program, that's a really good sign. Yep. Um, I think if they, uh, the things that um, concern me and distress me are hearing things like, if you break a rule, then you just get kicked out. Like yeah. ask about discharge and, um, you know, completion of program and, and that kind of thing. Um, because it's highly likely that someone going through either an inpatient or an outpatient program, um, a live-in or a live-out program, um, the, the process of addiction or dependence is a kind of cycling one. So people mm. will slip up as you go yep. along. And if you take that punitive approach, it's unhelpful. Yeah. And I think, you know, with the, the rehab stuff, the thing that becomes challenging for inpatient rehabs, and I'm just thinking back to when, you know, I was managing one and whatever is because they are that therapeutic community is how you manage someone's individual slip up if that happens during the program um, and how that will impact on the whole community and the attitude that kind of filters in and all that stuff. But you can do it. There is ways to do it and you shouldn't just be completely exited from a program. That definitely is something that is not helpful <laughs> overall. No. There's definitely ways of doing it that you can be, um, you know, help to understand your behaviour but not kick to the curb yeah 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 I, that's just not um even just from a duty of care perspective that's mm. not good mm. and it, even if you do need to exit the program if that's the consensus yeah um then there needs to be a link to some other kind of treatment service so yep. if you're in rehab and you're not really suited to the rehab then um you should be offered day rehabilitation or um an outpatient counseling um program yeah. Yeah. so we're thinking about stepping up and stepping down um treatment depending on what's appropriate for the person at the time yeah 100 percent. so the other thing that i wanted to ask you um just before we start 
getting to the, towards the end. And I think I know your answer to this and it's like similar to mine. Um, talking about rehab, like do people actually need to go, you know, from all your experience in this sector. And I know it's hard to kind of say on the masses because it's individualized, but uh, yeah, do people really need to go away for three months to six months to 12 months in some cases to get, to get recovery? Um, most people don't mm. and um, rehab is a really good option for someone who um, who has tried lots of other different types of treatment and it hasn't yep. worked for them yep. um, or they don't have a very good home environment where they need to be away for from it to yep. um, for treatment to be effective so um, either they're homeless or they're, they're living with a whole bunch of people who are still using yep. or um, they're in a in a situation, um, I don't know, with domestic violence or um, a very chaotic situation, or their dealer lives next door. Those kinds of things are really unhelpful in try, in people trying to get better. So yeah. if that's the case, then being away in a facility um, could be quite helpful. Yeah. Most people don't need that. Most people can get the level of intensity of treatment that they need. Um, through other means, through non-living um, types of treatment. Yeah, 100%. I, I couldn't agree more. And people really misunderstand me when I say this is that, yeah, it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but in the same um, kind of sentence is that, yeah, like largely people don't need to go to rehab. There is, for all the reasons that Nicole said, there is the reasons where people do need to go to rehab and that's that's great, right? And those services need to be there. But at the moment, we're probably too far on the end of like, oh, if you say that I have an addiction or a drug and alcohol problem or whatever it is that, boom, just go to rehab. <laughs> when actually, yeah. when from what I know about recovery in my own personal experience of, you know, because that's what recovery actually is. It's not about just being clean and sober and thinking about it in that way. It's about having a better life and feeling happier about yourself and all that stuff. Going to rehab for a lot of people is actually the exact opposite to what is needed for them, which is like some structure, routine, a sense of purpose um, and enjoyment by like going to work and being around family, um, yeah. you know, a chance to, kind of implement things into their everyday life um you know and it's it is kind of a crazy thing that we have is that you know that if you have a problem just just go away for three months <laughs> just remove yeah. yourself from society yeah it's really strange yeah. and then you come back to exactly the same situation that you left without any skills to deal with it because you've been away in a completely different environment yeah and the other, I think the other thing about rehab is that it's not for everybody. It doesn't suit everybody. If you no. think about, um, you need some level of skill to participate in yep. residential rehab. You're living with, I don't know, 10 to 100 other people mm. who you don't know, mm. who you might not like a lot of them, mm. um, who are also going through a difficult emotional time and you're going through a difficult emotional time. Yeah. Um, and you are asked to do very structured things um, the whole day. You've got to help cook, you've got to help clean, you've got to help do a whole range of other things. And not everybody ready for that level of intensity, not, notwithstanding the drug and, their drug and alcohol problem. Um, and people do, people who are 
quite dependent do just as well in day rehabilitation where they can go home or um, counselling, outpatient counselling, uh, where they just go once or twice a week or even yeah. more frequently. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so um, tell me, like, just to, like, because I'm just thinking as we're talking about all this, because this is something that often happens, is that someone's sitting here listening to this podcast or watching this YouTube video and they're thinking, and I don't mean to offend you here, but that's all well and good. Nicole, you fucking academic or whatever, like, and hour. Yeah. yeah, that's all, that's all good, Jack. Like you've come out the other side and you've got a great life and all that, but I'm sitting here, I'm struggling. I really want help. I'm on an assessment waiting list for three weeks or whatever. Cause that's what happens. Or I want to go to detox, but I have to wait five weeks or whatever. Um, like what, what do you actually like say to people? Um, like what can they do particularly now in these COVID times? Because I think that's the thing that people need to understand. We're not saying that the system's great and perfect. Um, but yeah, like what do you say to those people or what, what can people do just to um, get some kind of support for where they're at if they're in that situation? Mm. Um, so there's lots of um there's lots of different ways to access treatment and support mm. um, right from what, what we call bibliotherapy, which is just, you know, reading some stuff and doing your own thing. Actually, most people who have a problem with alcohol or drugs sort it out themselves. Yep. And um, they're, they're probably the people who don't have a trauma background and, and haven't been using for a very long time and don't have a complex family situation, for example. Yeah. So that's, um, that's a good place to start all the way up to residential rehab. Um, but there are things like um, I'm, uh, on the, I'm a, on the board of Hello Sunday Morning, yep. which is the, um, it's awesome. has a, yeah, it has an app um, that you can, join a community i think you know like there's something like a hundred thousand people have used it um and you can just chat with other people and get support peer support um yeah. from other people yeah. uh, through this app um there's lots of other online communities you can um you know if you can afford to you could go to a private um a private psychologist or nurse or social worker um you uh you also need to remember that there's a long waiting list for residential rehab, but there isn't long waiting lists for counselling. So that's mm. always an option. Even if you think ultimately you need residential rehab, something, for me, something is better than nothing. Mm. I, my, one of my favourite sayings um, is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Yeah. Any, anything that you can do, even if it's really small, to that makes you feel better or more supported, you should do it. Don't wait for the perfect solution. Yeah. Um, just, and there's not one size fits all. So try a few things. Not everything will work. You might try one thing. It doesn't make much difference. Try something else. Um, but there's a lot of things that you can try. Yeah, 100%. And that's what I say to people as well. Like when we talk about the system more broadly and we talk about some of the good things and the different stuff that you can do, like we're 
I just always have to, um, I think the word is um, caveat it with that whole um, notion is that, we, you know, we understand that <laughs> largely there is some parts of the system that are tough, like when you really want help and you have to wait and all those kinds of things. But mm. one thing that, you know, I'm always pushing for is the drug and alcohol sector in terms of the public side of things needs to have a better promotion arm um, and maybe consolidate mm. its efforts to promote because as Nicole said, there's actually now, they may not be the end result of what you need, but there is lots of stuff that you can kind of fill up in between whether it just be going on to things like Facebook and just typing yeah. in um, addiction group. And there's like loads of support groups that you can jump on and at least kind of talk to people um there's yeah there's things like hello sunday morning they're great there's lots of cool kind of internet things coming out now which is cool um and there's um a whole range of uh so um as you know jack i'm not a huge fan of aa i um yep. have a uh, there's a disconnect for me with the philosophy but as a support yep. group it's um, it's everywhere and it's very, very accessible. Mm. And I can see that some of the support groups have gone online now. Yep. Um, and also Smart Recovery is a, um, a more kind of CBT-oriented um, yep. version, not not nearly as widespread, but also online yep. now. Um, yeah, so there are lots of, uh, lots of things much more accessible than they used to be. A hundred percent. So, yeah, so just for everyone listening, like um, we, we get it that sometimes it can be tough, but if you do get into that space where you're waiting, just try and fill up your um, kind of support network or recovery capital, as they call it these days, um, uh, with as much kind of stuff as you can um, because it, it really helps. So just to finish up, um, the little... Um, Oh, what are they called? Leprechaun over the rainbow pot of gold question. Like if I, so actually just before, do you know off the top of your head, because so for everyone listening, funding of public drug and alcohol services and all healthcare services um, is split up into federal government funding and state government funding. So Nicole, do you know, because people are listening all around Australia and I think it varies between states, but states have the bulk of drug and alcohol funding. Is that right? That's correct. Um, is there a set number or they make it up themselves? They make it up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they make it up as they go along. Um, and it depends on which state you're in, how, what the size and the type of treatments that are available. Yep. So, you're in, so you're in Victoria, roughly, I am too, <laughs> roughly what, what's the state government funding for drug and alcohol services in Victoria? I know that. I don't know off the top of my head, but it's probably about 10 times the size of the federal funding. Yeah. What's the federal? Do you know the federal funding? Nope. Okay. No, that's all right. I was trying to think of it the other day. I don't even want to have a pot shot at it because I'll get it wrong. But anyway, so if I gave you all the, let's say the state funding and you had to like, cause I, it's, it is kind of somewhat substantial. Like what would you, like what would you do with it? How would you fix the system or make it better or, you know, whatever? Um, I, I'd probably, um, this is going to sound a bit controversial, but 
I'd probably actually reduce the size of the services and increase the quality of them. Yeah. So um, have, even if that might mean fewer people um, being seen, I think ultimately it will mean fewer people bouncing back and having to be seen multiple times yep. if we can improve the quality of the implementation of the science. Yeah. Um, so that would be like the implementation of the science is the really critical thing for me. I think that we know enough about what works. It's actually getting it into practice and getting it consistently into practice that's yep. the bigger, bigger problem. And I think the other thing for me is um, enhancing accessibility and I think technology is the thing that's going to do that. Boom. Hey, I'm with you there. (laughs) So I think that's really, um, if we can put more thinking into how that works, um, I think we'll do a lot better, especially with, you know, as you said, that kind of middle group, Mm. we could do a lot of secondary prevention where they don't go on to get um, worse problems and we don't have to see them in the alcohol system. That's right. I 100% agree with you. Like if it was me, I would almost probably do the same thing as you. Like I I wouldn't say that I would reduce. It would just be structured a lot differently and there'd be more of a front-end load on really quality um, telehealth and online services Mm. to A, capture people where they're at and where they're actually accessing um, yeah. information and services. And you do that, that stuff where you capture that group that you talked about, you prevent them from hitting worse problems because you get them earlier. Um, and you'd also be able to support people a lot more that did need those pointy end services and then make those pointy end services a hundred times better. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, oh. Anyway, don't get me started. I don't know why we can't just do this stuff. Just give me the money and let me do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, we should just run the world, Jack. That's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, well, thanks, mate. Thanks for coming on. Um, if people are listening and they want to know more about what you do, so Nicole does, um, so there's a couple of things that you can probably access straight away. She does heaps of stuff with frontline or her company, I should say, does heaps of stuff with frontline workers um, at 360 Edge, but also... Like where can people find you to, um, do you do direct client stuff as well? Oh, uh, sorry. I missed that. Do we have, have, we, have we frozen? Um, do you do direct client work as well? Or is it just more professional stuff at the moment? Um, my, uh, the main, um, thing that my, um, company does my organization does is uh works with services and governments and policy and practice um but i do um i just have a very small client load um yeah i don't see many clients but just yeah a couple at a time all good so if people want to know more um nicole's company is 360 edge where can where's where's the best place to find you uh well 3dedge.com.au is probably the first port of call. Yep. Awesome. No worries. Done. Hey, thanks for coming on, mate. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been fun.